We gather this morning on the first Lord's Day of the month of October. It's starting to feel like fall. Starting a bit to look like fall. It's our practice, many of our first Lord's Days of the month, to have an open forum. I decided because of a lack of questions that you folks would bring to put some of the pressure off of you to come up with new questions. And instead of doing it every month, we started to do it every other month. And I think we did it last month, but we have folks away from us this morning. Uh, We're expecting Tim and Mike. Uh, Tim had to go pick Mike up because Mike has had car problems, and uh, hopefully others will drift along, perhaps. But uh, certainly the Brookses are still away, and hopefully they'll come back early in the week. But... um, I thought it would be good to give you an opportunity, if you had a question, to do an open forum this morning. If I don't have a question that you can bring up this morning, I, I have something to fall back on, I think, but uh, we'll see how it goes. So uh, let me give you an opportunity to ask a question this morning, if you have a question or can formulate one in your mind um, quickly. Uh, <laughs> be free to speak. Okay, well, it's up to me then, right? Up to me to fill the time, fill the space, do more than just silence. The silence isn't always bad. Um, Most of you know my wife and I celebrated our 49th wedding anniversary uh, this week. And um, a lot of you know that uh, in two weeks' time, a little less than two weeks now, my son will be married so I imagine you can think that marriage is much upon my mind. And having been asked to perform the wedding of Adam and Carla, and certainly uh, weddings and wedding vows and uh, <clears throat> marital commitment and all that it entails has been much upon my mind. And in addition to that, uh, the Lord has opened up some um, opportunities where I've been asked to uh, address certain marital issues and marriages that have kind of gone a bit sour to look to see if we can seek to revive um, one particular marriage that I'm involved in in the counseling situation. And um, so as I've been thinking about the subject of marriage and uh, good marriages, bad marriages, struggling marriages, um, I thought it would be good to um, just sit out to you some of the things I think that are particularly modern temptations with respect to the marriage relationship. Um, most of us are old enough to remember when our society experienced something of a, a cultural revolution with respect to marriage in the family in, in the 60s, when the family structure that you would probably see, and I guess Leave it to Beaver was the television show most often appealed to, um, or Father Knows Best, or even the Nelson family, yeah, even though that was a little bit different. Uh, but anyway, um, that those kind of families were, um, of course, desirable. And uh, it started to be attacked. The nuclear family, the um, idea of what um, marriage is. Of course, you had uh, a time, even in my own memory, when divorce was a shocking thing. People didn't talk about divorces. Um, but, uh, of course, we went into the direction of no-fault divorces. Not that there weren't divorces. Generally speaking, you had to go out of state to get the divorces. I think there was a time when South Dakota was a place that had a very liberal divorce law, and people would go to South Dakota, and then people in South Dakota began to complain about that, and they tightened up the laws, and then Nevada became the next state that people went to for quickie divorces and such, or they go down to Mexico. But in most states, even until I think it was... I think shockingly, the 90s, that New York's very stringent divorce laws that said you had to produce an adulterer in order for a divorce to be granted, that that got thrown out in a more type of, I guess, what they call it, a no-fault divorce, where you don't have to say that there's a, 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 a you know, wretched cause. You could say a lot of things, and nobody asks questions, but as long as you're not uh, dwelling together for a certain period of time, in most states, they just grant divorce. But now people... Divorce is something common. Uh, people say, oh, this is my ex. And uh, you couldn't do that in the late 50s, early 60s. I mean, I lived through some of those that period of time. And 
remember how attitudes work, and those attitudes radically changed. And of course, with respect to the family, you begin to have, as we entered into the 70s, um, more of a call for women to find work situations outside of the home, uh, to get into police forces and fire forces and uh, military service. And uh, they used to have the wax that was a separate thing, and now it's all integrated in one army. And all of that was a great cultural shock uh, to many people, the direction that the culture has gone. And it's an unfortunate thing that with respect to Christians, we tend to respond to those cultural things, not with clear-headed biblical exposition, but look to find things in the Bible that would um, um, maybe move us to a state, a, a, a reaction that uh, we're comfortable with because it's against the way the drift of where society is going. And, but maybe we take it a little bit too far. I mean, I recall a time when we, in our church, had women pray in the public meetings. And then with the whole feminist movement that began, um, our pastors decided that women should not pray in the public meeting. In spite of the fact that even though you have Paul, I'm sorry, yes, Paul in Second First Timothy, uh, calling upon the men uh, to lift up holy hands. And there is a masculine word that's used on air, speaking of the men of the church responsible to take the lead in the prayer life of the church Um, and women were told that they were not to be teachers they were to be subordinate to the men and uh, receive teaching quietly in 1st Timothy chapter 2 and and, uh, you know there's I think a proper exposition to that passage but what that was taken to mean is women should not pray even though in 1st Corinthians you seem to have Paul acknowledging women were praying in the church only saying that they had to do it with their head covers their heads covered um, so you wonder, were they taking an extreme position? I mean, it's open to question. That's a debatable thing. But I think in many of these things, that's our tendency. And one of the ways in which we fail, I think, to have biblical notions of, um, of uh, God's will uh, that's accurate in, in, teaching, in the teaching of Scripture is, again, we fail to be whole Bible Christians. We, we look to come at this stuff from the perspective of here's what the culture is saying, we need something to fight it. We need something to react against it. And you'll never find a biblical understanding of the world if all you're doing is reacting. You have to have a biblical understanding that's based upon Scripture itself, what God himself has spoken. Because, you know, the things that the culture is saying today is not what they're going to say 150 years from now. Will it be better? Will it be worse? I don't know. It certainly wasn't what it was 150 years ago. And you know, 150 years ago, um, were people accurate about the Bible? Because the culture said uh, women should be at home and not, outside, not out of the home, not working. And uh, women should be subordinate in a way that uh, really uh, almost was childlike in some cultures that women were not uh, uh, even permitted to, to speak or, or, or have social interaction. The men would go into one room, the women in another room. Is that a biblical idea? Is that a biblical notion? It certainly seems to me that Aquila and Priscilla were doing a lot together when they were counseling Apollos. Uh, so it's a cultural thing that oftentimes we say, well, that's Christian because it accords with one understanding. And oftentimes what we do is we come at the subject of the biblical teaching kind of late in the book. <laughs> you know, we come to the whole question of women and their roles in the marital relationship uh, using uh, Ephesians 5 in particular, which states headship, submission, those roles. Uh, we come at it with respect to uh, 1 Corinthians uh, chapter uh, 11, which is the most confusing passage in my estimation. We won't get into it this morning. But I think there's just a lot that's confusing there, at least to me. And you've heard me discourse on that in the past. And, um, you know, those statements are there in the scriptures. You can't discount them. You can't ignore them. You can't neglect them. You have to expound them. But you see, a lot has been said by God all the way back from the book of Genesis that we have to have as foundational to everything that is said here. And one of the problems is that you can come to a statement in the New Testament, for instance, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, uh, where Paul says, 
that man is the glory of God, the woman is the glory of man. And you have to scratch your head and say, well, wait a minute. Paul, what are you saying and why? And how does that accord with Genesis 1, the creation account? Now, I told you I thought that there were some problems in my understanding with the, with the whole question of how does this accord with previous revelation? And is Paul really contradicting Genesis? I don't believe he is. But I think we have to have an understanding of what Corinthians is talking about that places the whole matter in conformity with what Genesis says and not at odds with, with that. But that's, a, that's an old study I did. Remember when I did that with regard to 1 Corinthians chapter 11 when we came to the book of 1 Corinthians? And I agonized through that. I think I came up with what I'm, what's satisfactory to me. But the point is we have to be consistent. The Bible is consistent. God's not speaking 12 different things on this subject. He's speaking a unified theme. And Paul understands Genesis. He's not neglecting Genesis and he's not looking to contradict Genesis. So it seems to me the best thing is to begin with Genesis, try to work our way through the teaching of the Bible with respect to marriage and with respect to the marital relationship to give light and understanding of what Paul's saying in 1 Corinthians 11, light and understanding of what Paul's saying in Ephesians chapter 5. But he's not contradicting that stuff. Now, we do believe that marriage is one of the three creation ordinances. And again, this is something that theology has come up with, but it does reflect, I think, what you find in the creation account, that there are these creation ordinances. Ordinances. Did I get that right? Ordinance. Yeah, right. Um, who can tell me what the creation ordinances are? There are three of them, at least that most people... See, in the creation account. Marriage. Tim? Yeah, marriage. Government. And what? Government. Family. Government? Mm, not so much in creation, although, yeah, that arises out of it. Mm-hmm. For this cause, a man shall leave his father and mother, cleave to his wife, the two shall be one. Then they start having children, you have family. That arises out of marriage. That's something that arises out of the ordinance of marriage. So, we do have marriage... Um, Uh, the other two are dominion over the earth that was expressed in subduing it yeah. and that has to do with putting Adam in the garden giving him a charge to uh, keep and tend the garden and so that means Adam is not to be a lazy guy he's to be a worker so there's labor labor that you see in the creation account man is made to as the commandment says, work six days. And then out of that you come. The other ordinance, that it was on the seventh day that the Lord rested from all of his works. And he looked upon all of his works and declared it to be very good. Okay? So you have a Sabbath. That also is something that is instituted at creation. So from the creation account, you can arrive at the fact that marriage is an ordinance of God. Uh, labor is an ordinance of God and the Sabbath is an ordinance of God um, and again when God instituted the Sabbath by his example of creation he declared all things were very good that's in chapter 1 of Genesis but chapter 2 of Genesis gives us another picture where the man is placed in the garden and, and God said there was something that was not good, you remember what that was? that man should be alone It was not good that man should be alone. And God said, I will make a helper after him, or according to him, or according to his needs. Uh, And he made all the animals to appear before Adam. And um, he saw among the animal kingdom, there was nothing that answered to him. Um, There was, I mean, he's not going to cohabit or marry a one of the beasts of the field, or one of the birds of the air. There's nothing made that was answering to him. There was no female version of a male, as there was in the animal kingdom, when God created the animal kingdom. And, of course, God caused the sleep to fall upon him, took the rib out of him, formed a woman. He didn't form a, a, a girl. He didn't form a, an infant child. He formed a woman, answering to him. There was something comparable to him. There was something that Adam could look at and not see something inferior to him, not see something unlike him. 
But see something like him. With differences, yes, obviously. Uh, but um, answering to him. And in chapter 1 of the Genesis account, in the creation account, God says, um, I, let us make man after our image and after our likeness. And so God uh, made him after in his image, male and female made he them. And so there's something about females as well as males that are the image of God. It's not just the male that's God's image, it's the female as well that's God's image. And you know, you see things in the account, even in creation, that the woman is a helper answering to him. The word is used, ezer, ezer. The woman is to be an ezer to the man. And what does that mean? Well, it doesn't mean a slave, it doesn't mean a servant. It means an ezer. An ezer is a helper. Um, you remember in the first Samuel, um, I think it was Samuel, <coughs> when he gathered the people to renew the covenant with God, he lifted up a stone and said, Hitherto has the Lord ezered us. Hitherto has the Lord helped us. And he raised up the stone, which was an ebon. And we sing, here I raise my Ebenezer, or my Ebenezer, in the hymn, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. Stone of help. Stone of help. Who's the stone of help? Well, God's the stone of help to his people. The woman was to be a helper to the man. So, uh, again, that aspect of helper is like, is godlike. It's godly. It's godly to be a helper. And that doesn't mean the man was never to help the woman. It didn't mean it was a one-way street. There's equality here in terms of identity as image of God. And there's companionship. And I would assume a certain measure of partnership and companionship and cooperation that entered in to the relationship that the man had with the woman. And of course, apart from sin, that wasn't a hard thing to do. It would be most natural you know, they would be working in the garden and uh, Adam would make some observation about how he think, thought things should be and the wife would say, well, no, I actually think it should be this way. And uh, there wouldn't be discord. There would be, a man would hear her out and, oh, interesting. Maybe we should do it your way. And there could be cooperation. You work together, in other words. is a partner in life that the woman was to be to the man. And there was unity for this cause shall a man leave his father and mother, cleave to his wife, and what the two shall be made one. So that's the picture of unity. Now it's unity, of course, that's expressed in the sexual relationship, that the two become one in the sexual relationship. But that's just um, a picture of a more general unity that the man and the woman are to have together. Not just a union of bodies, but a union of minds, a union of respect and appreciation and love, all entered into the relationship that the man was designed to have with the woman. I think Matthew Henry makes the comment at the creation account that the woman was taken from his, his rib, uh, not from his feet that he might trample over her, nor from the head that she might rule over him, but from his rib, near to the heart, he says. Envisioning a relationship of loving, intimacy, and union. That was the, the, the design of God in marriage. Now, what happened? <laughs> what has made that original design to be the sort of thing we see today where one out of two newly contracted marriages end in divorce, is probably more than that, and where marriages so often are very oh, difficult. I mean, three women are murdered every day in America at the hand of their spouse or significant other. I guess you know, there's some women that also kill their men, but usually poison they use, gunshots, stabbing, choking the whole business that, that men do. Um, how did that happen? Why does that happen? Well, of course, sin is the culprit. It is the reality of the fall. It's the reality of humans, humanity's fallen condition that has brought about conditions where there is division, there is suspicion, there is blaming. I think of it right when Adam and Eve sin against God, what do they do? Well, first of all, that sense of freedom and openness and unashamedness they had in one another's presence is no longer. 
They're, they're, they know they're naked. They know they're shame, shame, they feel shame in one another's presence. They look to cover up their shame. And again, the shame is really the shame of their sin. Their sin before God. Um, again, in a marriage relationship, in the freedom of the, the, the marital union, there should be no sense of shame. God smiles upon a man and woman engaged in the marital bliss of the enjoyment of, um, of the union that God has designed. Not just to bear children, but to express their love to one another. And Adam and Eve in the garden uh, could no longer even feel comfortable in one another's presence. They flee from the presence of God. And then, of course, God comes and interrogates them. And the first thing the man says is, the woman made me do it. Um, why have you done this, Adam? The woman that you gave to me. So he's filled with the sense. Of, you know, that's what sin does. It causes you to say everybody else is responsible for my misery in life. Not me. It's them. I'm not at fault. Everybody else is at fault. It's society's fault. It's the, le- the government's fault. It's, um, it's my parents' fault. And now sometimes fault is, does belong to lots of people, but never to the exclusion of the reality of your own. Uh, uh, your own sin Uh, but man tends to just uh, foist responsibility off of himself to others and he becomes a a blame shifter and that's sort of the natural reality of humanity and sin but then there's an added part of this in the curses that God speaks in Genesis chapter 3 and and turn to this I'm alluding to a lot of the passages in Genesis 1 to 3 but um, here's one we'll read. Is, um, to the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing and pain. You shall bring forth children. So that's your relationship to childbearing and bringing children into the world, which is the woman's um, uh, role um, as, as, as childbearer and mother. Um, but then it, there is a relationship to her husband, where language is used that expresses that relationship in this way. Your desire shall be for or towards your husband, and he shall rule over you. Now, that's something that in our own um, understanding might not, we might not get very far, except there is another usage of those same verbs that's found in the very next chapter. And here it's not the relationship of the husband and wife, it's the relationship of sin to Cain. In verse 7 of chapter 4, God says to Cain, If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. And here's the same language as in chapter 3. Its desire is for you. The sin that's crouching at the door, its desire is for you. What would that entail? Sin's desire for you. Its desire to do what? To bless you? His desire is to make you happy. No, his desire is to dominate you. His desire is to overwhelm you. His desire is to make you its slave. That's what its desire is. But you must rule over it. You must take command over sin and say, you shall not rule over me. And with brutal force, endeavor to engage in a warfare against it and suppress it with every means possible. So when you take that relationship between sin and Cain, and God stating, sin wants to rule you, but you suppress it. And now you bring that over to the relationship of the man and the woman. What's what's happening here? Well, your desire, woman, is to dominate your husband. Your desire is to rule him, just as sin wants to rule Cain. But he... Not, uh, I don't think this is so much a matter of um, a curse. It's a matter of how men will respond to a woman wanting to dominate him. They'll just say, forget that. I'm boss around here. And he's going to look to crush her. Because he thinks he's the one that ought to be ruling. So in a relationship of designed mutuality, companionship, love, helping one another, companions in life, union, unity with each other. What do we have? 
Well, we have what happens in the world today. Um, we have the reality of marital discord. We have the reality of the battle of the sexes. We have the reality of um, the horror that often we see uh, in marriage relationships as part of what it is to live in a cursed and fallen world. But the simple fact is, God's purpose in his grace is to bring us back to the original design. To bring our relationships back to the original design. And, you know, enough time to do all the work needed to expound this thing fully. But it's seen in the fact that much of the commandments of the law are meant to suppress the natural tendency of men to do things they probably shouldn't be doing. In fact, they shouldn't be doing. Uh, You have the matter of divorce. I mean, God permits divorce in Deuteronomy 25. You go into the New Testament, Jesus says, Moses, for the hardness of your heart, permitted it. Not not that he commanded it. The, The Pharisees were saying, why does Moses command a man to put away his wife? He does no such thing. They don't command the man to put away his wife, but there is a permission to put away his wife, and there's a restraint upon the tendency to go and get wife after wife after wife after wife if somebody displeases you. Because the rule is, if he puts the woman away, he can't take her back once he's contracted a new marriage. You just can't be doing that. You can't just be making the woman to be your little toy, uh, to, to, to cast her out, bring her back, cast her out, bring her back. There has to be some kind of... Uh, law that says you just can't treat women that way. You can't treat a wife that way. And and so God gives legislation uh, to um, for the hardness of the heart of of Israel to suppress some of the worst tendencies in the human heart. And we can look at other um, similar things that the law states. But the whole purpose of God's design with respect to his dealings with his people is to bring people back to the original design. And it's seen in many ways in the New Testament. A lot of people think the Bible is a is a misogynist book. It's a book that it, uh, looks to hate women, suppress women, speak evil about women. And the very fact is it's just the opposite. Because in the culture of the time, again, because of the reality of sin, because of the fact there is this tendency of women looking to dominate men, men looking to dominate women, men being probably stronger with their upper body, they're going to beat them to death and brutalize them. Uh, it, it, is a sh- it is a male-dominated world. Just by, by nature, m- most cultures are not like the Amazons. I don't even know if they existed. I think the legend of the Amazons were w- women warriors. No, it's the men who have been the warriors. It's men who have suppressed women. Just... Uh, just by nature, because they can. And they get away with it, because they dominate the culture. Christianity and even the Old Testament law came to give women back much of that which was lost. I mean, there there are actually uh, rules that are given if there is no male heir that women gain property. That was unheard of in the ancient world, that women would gain property. Um, And then women are made to be dignified in the teaching of Scripture. Uh, they're, they're, they're valued as, well, as, as wives and they're valued as mothers. You have the poem of Proverbs chapter 30, a good woman uh, who, who can find, she's, her price is above rubies. And then there's a celebration of a woman who engages in life in a way in which she expresses a multiplicity of giftedness and talents and abilities that she performs. Uh, the idea of a woman in biblical times was not someone who was just in the kitchen, barefoot and pregnant. Because um, this is a woman who, yes, she's working on behalf of her children, but she's making her arms strong. She's out there you know, planting a field. She's buying the field. She's engaging in commerce. She's making merchandise. She's selling it. She's doing all this stuff. And, uh, and the fact is, her husband trusts in her. That's an amazing statement. Her husband trusts in her, views her as a capable, able, competent woman to carry out these activities, um, and he doesn't have to fear. Look, God do his own thing, his own business, what he's called to do, and just know that all the affairs of, of the home are taken care of. 
He doesn't micromanage the woman. He's not bossing her around. He's not telling her what to do. She's a woman. She's a mature woman with, with, un, with understanding and with um, giftedness and talents that she expresses. And that's encouraged, not discouraged. So that you have women in the Old Testament who are rulers. Deborah, the mother in Israel, who's a judge of the nation. Barak doesn't even want to go up to fight the battles without her. Um, I don't think she went to war. I think she went to counsel. I think she went to encourage. She was an encourager of the nation. She's a mother in the nation. You have Huldah as a prophetess in the days of uh, Jeremiah, the days that Josiah uh, found the law. Um, You have women who have um, chief roles in the Old Testament scriptures. And they're not just made to be barefoot and pregnant and stay in the kitchen and know your place. And I say that because we have this mentality. And really, it's an extreme reaction to feminism. I I, I came across it just the other day with some guy saying that uh, a woman's... is a Catholic guy who was talking, and he was not just among evangelicals, you see this. Catholic guy is saying... uh, you know, what a man wants, you know, like that's the important thing. What does a man want? Well, a man wants the little woman who stays in the kitchen, makes her pies, breaks brownies and cookies, and she makes rosaries. That's what he said. With a religion, she just forms rosaries, maybe sells them, I don't know. That's what this Catholic guy was saying. And, and, and she doesn't read theology. <laughs> I read that and I said, that's crazy. She doesn't read theology. So my response was, she shouldn't just be reading theology. Hopefully she would be writing theology. (laughs) Uh, There are some brilliant women who have a lot to offer of theological understandings and insights. And people in the church that I valued in evangelical institutions that are teaching God's word. um, And their voices need to be heard. I don't agree with uh, John MacArthur telling Beth uh, Moore to go home. I think Beth Moore is a godly woman, and and she's an insightful woman. Yeah, she has crazy thing ideas, and you shared some of those with me. But um, you don't you don't say to a woman, don't read theology. You don't say a woman, don't look to be growing in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. But men, men don't want ignorant women. Maybe boys want ignorant women, but not men. Men want women who are intelligent and can converse well and speak well. Be like Aquila. Uh, taking leadership, even at the, table, the dinner table with Aquila. I'm sorry, with, uh, with Apollos. And you know the phenomenon that you see in the book of Acts, where originally in Acts 18, the order is Aquila, the guy, and then Priscilla, the woman. But then you go into the letters, it's Prisca and Aquila. She somehow comes up to the forefront. And then you see all the gifted women that Paul is speaking about in the book of Romans. So, you know, whatever we think of the relationship of male and female, uh, women in the church, women's gifts and graces are called upon to be um, important. And, they're, you know, the, your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Uh, your old men shall see dreams. All, all the people of God have the Holy Spirit. All the people of God are given something to do. All of them are gifted. And that's true in the church. And that's true in the family as well. Um, The idea that men are to be molding their women sort of as... um, I'm trying to think which one was Pygmalion. If Pygmalion was the sculptor, Pygmalion was the thing that he sculpted. That's the guy, that's the the play. It's, It's an ancient play. And George Bernard Shaw did a version of it that became My Fair Lady, where you have a guy that's looking to mold the woman uh, to be the um, to go to the embassy ball and to pass off as a, as a, an educated lady when she was just someone with a, couldn't even speak proper English. Uh, so you all, you all know that story. Well, it came from the fact that some guy made a statue that he wanted to form the woman to be whatever he wanted her to be. And sometimes that's how guys see marriage relationships. I had a friend who was in school with me, and uh, he was preparing to be uh, a pastor. And uh, I think I've told you this before, came to our home one night for dinner. And uh, the woman is 
Um, I guess the word would be, is it loquacious? <laughs> she can talk up a storm. She's as amazingly gifted talker. And she's, she's interesting. She's interesting. But this pastor thought that this was an aspect of her character. There might have been a liability in the ministry. So I think she was on strict orders not to talk too much. <laughs> and as they were going out the door, we, we heard her ask, was I okay? <laughs> was I quiet enough today? Um, that's not a woman who I think we should, um, uh, that's not what we should desire women to be. But people in the church think, well, I'm the head, I, I, I will mold the woman, I will shape her into whatever design. That's not an idea of headship, that's biblical. Again, Proverbs 30 is the idea of the kind of woman that you should value and thank God for and be seeking. Um, But this whole question of role relationships that come in, I think it needs to be understood that um, these roles are not adverse to everything else that we see in the scriptures. It's not looking to put men in leadership in a way that they become the boss. Or men in leadership in the way in which they simply mold their wives or um, to gratify them and to please them and to just be automatons just you know doing parroting words and doing actions and the man is just at the controls uh, telling her what to do and giving her 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 directives again the whole idea of the Proverbs 30 uh, relationship is the man trusts in the woman. The woman cultivates her gifts within the home, within the family, within the community, within commerce and trade that she's involved in. Anything and everything that she's gifted to do, she does, and he's trusting her. He's not micromanaging her life. Husbands, love your wives is, is the command. Now, it's interesting. It, it's the command that really should dominate what the home life is like. That you should go into the home, and the first thing you should see is not, oh, what a submissive woman she is. Look at how he submits to him. It should be, oh, how he loves her. Look at the way in which he demonstrates love to his wife. Love is the prominent thing that we're called upon. Um, Really, at the beginning of the chapter, uh, chapter 5 and verse 1 of Ephesians, before you get to the domestic situation, the roles, relations, the um, the order of things in homes. Uh, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Jesus has set the tone of what our lives should be in the love with which he has loved us. That he has loved us sacrificially. He gave himself up for us. So we should be willing to give up our lives for the sake of others. We're to walk in love, male and female are to walk in love. But it's not only that male and female are to walk in love. Male and female are also to walk in submission. Walk in submission. Again, 5.1 has the note of love. 5.21 has the note of mutual submission. And again, it's with respect to the people of God, how we relate to one another, submitting to one another out of reverence to Christ. So all of us, male and female, ought to know what it is to love one another and what it is to submit to one another. There, and what submission involves, it, it involves humility. It involves being willing to hear the opinions of another person. And not just to reject it out of hand and say, well, that's wrong, but to consider. To consider. And um, then also to serve and to please and to help and support all that's involved in, um, again, it's part of the way we serve one another. We serve one another in love. We serve one another in this matter of mutual submission. So that has to inform the way we see this worked out in the home. And the fact that we're to be loving each other, we're to be submitting to one another, and um, nobody's the boss, nobody's the slave. Um, it's not a question of an adult male and of a childish female. That is not the picture. It's not a question of one walking over the other. The call of the wife is to show the relationship of the church to Christ. Submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. 
For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church. And before men say, there, say head. Again, it doesn't mean boss. It means leader. It means a leader. And what kind of leader are you to be? Well, that leadership is defined. But the call is for the wife to show the submission of the church to Christ, even as the Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. See, that's the other thing. I should point out the other thing is we tend not only to come uh, to the places late in the book without seeing the whole way in which the scenario of, of human relationships are seen in the totality of scripture is that we tend to come to these verses and accentuate the parts of them we like and also to accentuate the words that we like everything submit in everything that means everything well really really <laughs> a lot of men would like their wives to do things that you would be sinning to do you can't submit to him if he's advocating that you are sinning you say that uh, you know Bonnie was doing what she should have did because Clyde told her to rob the banks <laughs> no she's guilty too she shouldn't have been involved with robbing banks with Clyde old film from the 60's Bonnie and Clyde you probably remember it criminal activity, sinful activity unwise activity in fact the whole question of, you, of male headship because the male trusts in his wife really should not even come up but on rare occasions that a man is going to say I need to exercise leadership in a way that says here's a directive I'm asking you to obey See, there are people that have this idea that if you're going to be ahead in any relationship, you've got to be the boss, you've got to be giving directives, you've got to be like a drill sergeant. And you know, there's sometimes you don't even obey the drill sergeant. There are times when, even in the military, where there's an authority structure that is rather rigid. Even laws say if the authority structure is asking you to do a criminal activity, to engage in torture... You have every right to say no. I will not do it. You have responsibility not to do sinful things, criminal things, or unwise things. And leadership is only going to ask those under them to do things when it's in their interests. When it's in their best interests. And so, you know, I tell people that I counsel with regard to marriage, do you want to be a good head to your wife? Basically, give her what she wants, unless she wants something that's not in her best interest. Amen. 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 <laughs> you know, why would I sit back and say, Jen, you can't do this? I mean, she wants to go out with Sue for dinner. I'm going to say, no, I want you to stay home and serve me. Why? Why would I do that? Why would I deny her friendships? Why would I deny her a, a freedom to be with the people she wants to be and to be doing the things she wants to be doing? The only time I'm going to intervene in that is when it's not in her best interest. Honey, you, this is, you need to rest. <laughs> I'm really concerned for you. It's out of concern that you would express then something where you'd say, I'm going to have to pull rank. Because really, the rank you have is with an intelligent human being, who's a gracious human being, who's seeking the will of God. And this whole relationship is not self-interest. It's loving. It's sacrificial. It's giving. It's not denying. So when you see these guys that are pressing their authority... And saying the woman, do this, do this, do this, do this. You know, sometimes you just have to say, why would you do that? Why would you deny her what she wants to do? That's the kind of chauvinism that's really repulsive. That's wrong. Remember the Beatles? There's a Sgt. Pepper's album where John Lennon said what he was like. This is not a model for male conduct. I used to be cruel to my woman. 
I beat her and kept her apart from the things that she loved. Man, I was mean, but I'm changing my scene and I'm doing the best that I can. Man, you should be in jail. <laughs> you know, but that in that time, in that time frame, men got away with that. Cruel to his woman, beat her and kept her apart from the things that she loved. That's not a Christian man. That's not a Christian ideal. That's criminal. That's wrong. That's something that should not be emulated by the people of God. We should look at those things with being repulsed. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for it. Again, that he might sanctify. Again, it's, it's ministerial. It's serving. It's looking for the good and the benefit of the one that you love. As Christ loved the church, cleansing her, washing her with water by the word that he might present the church himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. The husband should want the good of his wife, the sanctification of his wife, the advancement of his wife in wisdom and knowledge and the fear of the Lord and in serving the people of God. This is not a competition, folks. This relationship of marriage is not a competition. It's a collaboration. It's husband and wives being brought together for, to together seek to further the ends for which they are married, raising their children in the fear and admonition of the Lord, and, and, and seeking one another's happiness, seeking one another's well-being, seeking one another's uh, well-being at every level, spiritual, spiritually, um, emotionally, uh, socially, relationally. And, and there's just a tendency on the part of men that are just filled with themselves and the notion of headship to be abusive, to their wives, to be spiritually abusive, to be emotionally abusive, to be verbally abusive. And it simply is, you know, you know, if only she would submit. And that's the other part of the thing. That these guys, when, you know, the blame shifting, what was that, you know, Adam, who's, who's at fault here? You or Eve? She's at fault 100%. Oh, really? You think that? You think Eve's at fault 100%? What was Adam doing when Eve's conversing with the snake? What's that? He's hanging out, doing nothing. Doing nothing. Not interceding, not uh, looking to keep Eve away from this dangerous, malicious, unclean beast. He's just doing nothing. What's worse? He probably got God's word direct and she got it from him. Where was he to intercede? Where was he to intervene? Where was he to be of counsel? Where was he to be of help? He does what most guys do. Just sits there. Does nothing. It's never, it's her fault. If only she'd be a better wife. If only she'd be submissive. And there are actually guys that think that. If she was a submissive wife, I'd be a loving husband. But you know, the other thing is true more often than not. If he was a loving husband, she'd find it a lot easier to submit to him. And, and he wouldn't be pulling rank just to gratify himself and say, I'm the boss around here. Because his heart would trust in her. Well, I've said about what I wanted to say. Um, there's so much more to say in terms of the biblical picture of marriage and just where things do go wrong. But um, uh, this is something that's been on my mind just in the light of thinking of all the pitfalls I was guilty of through 49 years now of marriage. Things I wish I had to do over. Um, I remember early on I had, I had a guy say to me, you always hurt the ones you love. That's an old song. You always hurt the ones you love, the ones you shouldn't hurt at all. And uh, that is so true. That is so true. And I've told my wife, I think I might have told it to you in a public meeting, I'm, I'm resolved to, to live the rest of my life doing no additional harm. <laughs> doing no additional harm. If I can get to glory without doing one ounce further harm, I'll be very thankful to God. Because scripture tells us love does no harm to the neighbor. So I think it's sad when we see marriages in which people are doing active harm 
to those they shouldn't harm at all. Well, let's, any questions at all? I've said about what I want. Yes, Jan, please. Oh, of course, yes. And so what would be some words of comfort and advice to those in a Christian relationship or, or uh, a relationship period, maybe one spouse is a Christian and the other is not? What is your advice to someone who feels they are being um, mistreated by a spouse? How do they stay in that relationship? How do they survive in that relationship? Uh, is there anything short of telling on them to a pastor or a counselor that they need to be doing for themselves as well as for their spouse? Yeah. Um, I just, you know, you mentioned that men experiencing abuse from women. Um, I think a King Arthur. <laughs> Camelot. How to handle a woman. <laughs> There's a way, said the wise, wise old man, the way to handle a woman is to love her, simply love her. And, and I think it's true. I think men set the tone for family. And the presence or absence of love is that which women are looking for, desire, and respond well to. I, I just don't think women respond poorly to men who genuinely love them and have their best interests at heart. Um, I think of, I always think of Superman, not only King Arthur, but Superman. Remember back in the 70s, they made uh, the Superman with uh, Christopher Reeve and um, Margot Kidder. Well, a lot of Margot Kidder's movies, she played the classic feminist, right? She was the one who, uh, you know, would be, and even in, even playing Lois Lane, which she did. Uh, she was a feminist when she was in the presence of Clark Kent. But then the presence of Superman, <laughs> different story. It was Gaga. It was, uh, you know, she finally found a man she respected, I think is probably what you could say. And I think a lot of the problems is that, you know, women lose respect for a man who's self-interested, self-absorbed, who walk around like King Tut, who are ordering the woman, get my slippers, get my beer, get my, get my, get my pipe, and making them their servants. And they weary of that, and they tire of that. So I think so much of it does have to do with male leadership, that men are to lead, and men are to lead, first of all, loving the woman. And sometimes, if you've been doing it wrong for years and years and years and years, you've got to start doing it right, and without expectation that you get anything in return. Just do it because it's right. Just love her because it's right. Just try to learn wisdom in this relationship. And, and over time, I think things begin to heal. Again, I, I think what happens is, you know, in, in relationships, it, it tends to get personal. He is always this. I mean, you loved one another when you stood in a, in a marriage ceremony and you found lifetime fidelity. And, and that's all broken down. How did it get broken down? Well, well largely because uh, of this whole matter of of. of of, of diminished expectations. He doesn't measure up to what I expected. She doesn't measure up to what I expected. And then you get bitter. And when you get bitter, you, you say, well, she's always this way, and he's always that way. And if only he would... And it gets personal. It's very personal. And it gets very bitter. So what I tell people to do, and I usually put it on the board like this, is that you know, you, you, you have, you've gotten past the whole matter of being centered in uh, whatever it is you define here as your problem. And, uh, you know, the man is here, uh, the woman is here, and uh, the problem isn't even being looked at. What are you looking at? You're looking at her. And you're directing all of your words and abuse and, and charges uh, against her. And she, in turn, is defending herself by doing the same thing towards you. No, I'm not the problem. You're the problem. And here's why. And she gives her charges against him. And this cycle has to stop. Or this, this scenario has to stop. And the only way it gets stopped is at least one, hopefully two. At least one of these people is going to stop this attacking the person. And determine, I'm going to uh, sort of come around here <laughs> with the person and begin to see things from her point of view. 
begin to sympathize with what her desires are, aspirations are, her um, outlook, at least understand it. Again, a man is commanded in Scripture to dwell with his wife according to knowledge. And it's, it's not enough uh, to say, um, you know, she doesn't obey me in this. Why? Why? Why is she not obedient? What are her objections? What are you proposing that she doesn't go along with? What is making her tick? What is making her respond in the way that she's responding? You have a responsibility, if you're going to obey that command, to dwell with your wife and according to knowledge, to find that out. You've got to start studying the woman you're married to. And the woman really should do the same thing. And then when you both are sympathetic to each other, where you are, and not hurling insults, not hurling charges, not making accusations, but on one another's side, you know, you're not on different teams now, then together you can begin to attack the problem. And usually that's going to involve a good bit of compromise. I mean, I'm amazed at how many people just don't even think compromise is possible. They think compromise is a, um, well, it's compromising with truth to say, you know, I'm going to you know, meet you halfway. And, and it's sad that we've become that way as evangelicals, afraid to compromise. We think we're compromising truth. No, I don't think it's a compromise the tr- of, of truth. Uh, to give in to another person's understanding and say, well, you know, I haven't thought of it that way. <laughs> because your way of thinking is not absolute. It, it, it's usually not a compromise of Bible principle. It's a compromise of the way you look at a Bible principle, the things you're thinking about Bible principle, and you haven't even thought there might be another way because you're just so digging in your heels. Oh, this is compromise to feminism if I did what you're suggesting. No, it's not. It's not. It's loving your wife as Christ loved the church. It's dwelling with her and according to knowledge. You can put that in biblical categories and see the Bible is calling you to the very activity I'm advocating. Well, that's some of the way I cook to bring them together and try to tell them how they need to respond. But I wouldn't think it's the woman's responsibility to put up with abuse. I don't think that's right. I think to put up with verbal abuse, physical abuse... um, I think the, I think First Corinthians eleven addresses the whole question of um, you know, leaving for a season. Uh, I think putting some pressure upon the man to get things right. Usually, and the Paul gives that to the woman. He doesn't give that to the man. That whole matter of separation. He did, he gives that to the woman because again, the woman could be subjected to the kind of abuse that could be almost jeopardizing her life. And so, I, I think it's perfectly proper that a woman finds some retreat. In, in, in a Christian in a relative's home and Christian family and even a safe house if needed if there is danger to her physical well-being and certainly danger to her, her soul if there's spiritual abuse going on or, or danger to her, her, her sense of, of you know, just well-being if there's some kind of an emotional abuse that's going on she, women should not have to put up with it and uh, as a pastor, I, I, would, I would tell the man, you're going to lose her. <laughs> you're simply going to lose her. You know? You, and it's funny, it's when they leave the home, when, when, when the woman goes back to mama, that's usually when the pastor gets the phone call. <laughs> as, as long as he's in the house, the four walls, he's king, he doesn't see the need for counseling. <laughs> He doesn't see the need for change. She gets up and walks. Pastor, she's left me. How many, I, actually, that's happened so many times. Men calling me, crying on the phone that they've lost their wives. I said, well, good for you. I'm glad she's out of that kind of abuse that you've been de- dealing out to her. Now let's see if we can put this together. And now he's willing. Now he's willing. To, to seek and, and, and get counseling. But he wasn't when all the control was in his hands. Anyway, let's pray. Father, we're thankful for the blessing of Christian marriages. We're thankful for the joys we've known in our own marriages with our own spouses. Lord God, we do regret all the ways in which we have 
been unfaithful to your word and ways in which we have harmed and hurt and wounded and with words and with actions our marital partner and we're thankful for forgiveness we're thankful we can come to you asking for forgiveness and asking for grace uh, to to have stronger marriages where unity and love and mutual um, respect uh, predominates so teach us these things we pray help us to walk in the light as you are in the light that the blood of Christ would cleanse us from all of our sins and we would have fellowship with you the living and the true God we ask you to hear our prayers we ask you to bless your people as we greet one another this morning as we enter into the morning hour of worship we'd ask these things in Jesus name Amen